Okay, um, welcome everyone to the Earthquake Science Center seminar for June 1st, uh, 2022. So as a reminder, please uh, turn off your cameras and mute your microphones. Um, if you want closed captioning, you can go to the three dots button on the top of your screen, hit more, and then choose to turn on the live captions. Um, so we have a few announcements today, first of which is that there'll be a celebration of life for Chris Stevens. Um, that's happening at 2 p.m. at the uh, Menlo Park campus uh, in the building two courtyards. That's today, a um, few hours after the seminar. Um, next week's seminar will be from Sabine Luce. That's going to hopefully be in person. Uh, so she's coming from the USGS National Hazard Center in Golden. And her talks going to be about uh, designing user-centered and integrated earthquake information. Um, so if you have any questions, feel free to um, either unmute your microphone during the talk or type them in the chat. Um, and then we can get to the rest at the end of the Q&A. Um, so today's our speaker is Esteban Garcia. Um, he's coming from the University of Michigan. Um, and so Josie Nevitt will be uh, introducing him. All right, thanks. Um, so yeah, we welcome today Dr. Fernando Estefan Garcia as our seminar speaker. Estefan grew up uh, in the East Bay before gaining his BS from UCLA and then his MS and PhD from Berkeley, all in civil and environmental engineering. Uh, during his PhD, where he was advised by Jonathan Bray, uh, Stefan developed computationally advanced discrete element models of surface fault rupture through granular materials and of the interaction between surface fault rupture and the built environment. Following his PhD, Stefan completed a postdoc at Caltech. Um, he's received a slew of academic and research awards and is now uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Michigan. Estefan's work is extremely rigorous and tackles really fundamental questions about how fault ruptures reach and interact with Earth's surface. So we're lucky to have him here today and are really looking forward to his talk. So thank you and, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Josie, for the introduction. I'll go ahead and uh, share my screen. Let's see. Okay. And okay. So, uh, everyone, I will be presenting uh, this talk, High Performance Discrete Element Modeling of Earthquake Surface Fault Rupture. So first, I'm going to give some of the background and motivation behind this, behind this research. Then I'll just kind of talk about the combination of high performance computing, discrete element modeling, uh, and fault rupture itself. And time permitting, I'll go into some other developments, ongoing and future ideas before just kind of presenting some of the conclusions at this stage of, of this research. So the motivation for this research is pretty simple. Earthquake surface fault rupture can, it, uh, can cause significant damage to the built environment. And I love these images in particular from recent earthquake surface fault rupture events. Uh, I was fascinated by how this fault here uplifted the uh, the seafloor above the water level and caused quite a bit of damage to uh, Highway 1 here in Kaikoura. Um, and I'm sure there's we, we can find plenty of pictures of how fault rupture can significantly damage structures. And I like this image uh, from the gear reconnaissance of the 2019 Ridgecrest earthquake uh, because the caption for this image in, the, in their gear report was pretty simple. They said that this, that this ground was flat prior to the earthquake. So the, the goal of this project is, is basically to develop uh, a virtual experimental framework for studying this hazard and this phenomenon. And I'll say really quickly, uh, 
go ahead and interrupt me during this uh, during this talk. I'm, I'm happy to keep things informal um, and to answer questions as uh, as we go along. So I want to talk about uh, sandbox analogs, which is kind of where I got this original idea where a lot of researchers uh, over many years have used uh, sandbox scale studies and not just sand, sometimes clays as well uh, to study uh, uh, fault induced deformations. Um, uh, thrust features, uh, folding, and also um, just surface fault rupture interaction with foundations and, and other aspects of the built environment. So these are just kind of a slew of different examples of these quote-unquote sandbox studies. And some that really stand out to me that I think are particularly relevant uh, to my research area are this one by Cole and Lade in 1984, where they actually developed a closed form solution for the path and outcrop location of fault rupture that takes uh, takes different input, input parameters, namely the, um, the, the depth of soil, the dip angle of the fault, and the soil's angle of dilation, where this is the, is the only intrinsic soil property that controls the path of fault rupture. And the more recent experiments, the centrifuge experiments by Bransby et al. in 2008 performed at the University of Dundee. Um, Bransby et al. performed a bunch of free field or just fault rupture with no, with no foundation present and fault rupture soil foundation interaction or FRSFI experiments to model how fault rupture propagates from this model bedrock up through the granular soil and interacts with this foundation placed at the top of the ground surface. And these particular experiments are very widely used to validate numerical models, hence why I spent a lot of time trying to study the boundary conditions of these experiments. And there are many advantages of sandbox analogs, and I'll put a little plug in uh, for my new friend, Philip Prince, who has some fascinating um, sandbox model studies uh, on his website as shown here. Uh, and these sandbox analog studies, they, they, are, they are good supplements to field case histories. I like to imagine uh, that seismologists spent a lot of time waiting for a new surface fault rupture event to occur and got impatient and decided to do some smaller scale, better controlled experiments. Um, so the, uh, so the, that leads to the other advantage, which is that experiments uh, can be performed with carefully controllable conditions and they use, utilize a real physical material such as sand or clay. And Chalenko in 1970 showed that uh, at the scale of, of basically sandbox models or even direct shear tests, that there are consistent shear features as observed in, uh, in field case histories. And also, I think these are great educational tools to elucidate different mechanisms of, uh, of tectonic deformation at the small scale. But, there are also some disadvantages of these types of models. Um, one, that you know they are not nature. Uh, nature is highly complex, which is very difficult to capture in, uh, in some of these controlled experimental settings. And single gravity models don't capture the stress dependency of soil behavior. Also, centrifuge experiments can be extremely costly and after uh, and uh, another colleague of mine who uh, admittedly knows uh, a lot more about centrifuge modeling than I do uh, has uh, shown me how a very simple centrifuge experiment can 
that would only take a few minutes can actually take a couple of weeks in total when you talk when you consider um, preparation and wiring and the, on all and all other types of uh, of, um, of setting up the model. Furthermore, the results that are visible in the experiment are usually impacted by uh, by the boundaries of the model, and it's very difficult to quantify information throughout the entire model domain. And many of these physical experiments are homogeneous. However, nature is fundamentally and most often heterogeneous and uh, things such as soil layering, such as in this example here, show that kind of give an example of how layered uh, layered stratigraphies are actually the norm, not the exception. And these should be accounted for when trying to capture more realistic uh, fault rupture propagation behavior. So to overcome many of the challenges associated with physical modeling, uh, many researchers resort to numerical modeling. Uh, most often they use continuum-based numerical modeling, namely the finite element and finite difference methods. An example from my, uh, from my colleague Nick Odell and our shared advisor uh, John Bray is shown here with the FLAC finite difference code. Now the challenge with continuum modeling is that they're often used to model fault rupture through granular soils, such as sands. And fault rupture itself is a discontinuity problem and sand is fundamentally a discontinuous granular medium, not quite captured using a continuum-based model. So the alternative numerical approach that I use in my research is the discrete element method, which is a physics-based approach to modeling individual grains in a model. So here is just kind of an outline of the discrete element method. Um, basically, instead of a constitutive model, we use a contact law, as shown here, that consists of springs, dash pots, um, these no tension joints, and these are a real logical contact model where when that controls the forces acting between two overlapping particles. And they and at their uh, their most fundamental, they usually include a normal contact model and a tangential contact model for uh, for sort of a more Coulomb sliding displacements. So this model works in this way. When two particles come into contact, they will overlap by a finite amount. And that finite amount of overlap is plugged in to this rheological contact model using uh, basic Hooke's law for springs, F equals KX. That force is calculated and then using uh, Newton's equation F equals MA, the resultant motion of the particles are then calculated as shown here. And repeating this calculation step over and over and over again for many different time steps for many different particles, we can, we can simulate complex material behaviors and uh, complex boundary conditions, uh, such as, for example, here, the development of a grobin during very shallow dipping normal fault rupture. And another uh, example of uh, another advantage of DEM is that there are many studies that apply DEM at various scales, um, kind of building on the idea from Chilenko in 1970 that features of shear rupture uh, at the regional scale of several kilometers 
are observed in at the experimental scale and also in smaller scale uh, shear box testing. And DEM requires no a priori information of material behavior or bulk material properties. The stress strain behavior of a collection of discrete element particles actually arises uh, in a more fundamental physics-based approach. So you're not actually telling the material what its properties are. You are allowing the properties to emerge based on, based on the, uh, the physics of their interactions. So this allows DEM to be used as a virtual experiment, which I think is different than a simulation because we, because we can use it in a way where we don't know how the material is going to behave, but we want, so we choose to model it in this way to elucidate how material behaves at various scales. One of these scales, I want to show this example from Finch and Gothorpe, where they actually use DEM to model, to model tectonic deformations over several kilometers, not just several uh, centimeters like in, uh, like in a physical experiment. And they were able, and using these uh, contact models in discrete element, uh, in discrete element contact laws, they can model things such as a brittle upper crust and a thermoviscous lower crust, all without any, with all without any uh, constitutive model calibrations. So again, I think this is a valuable tool for performing virtual experiments at various scales of tectonic deformations. And when I was uh, going through my literature review for how this tool has been applied, uh, I actually found that it's been used in this way uh, as far back as 1992 from Saltzer and Pollard and Saltzer herself. And uh, here's an example of how uh, how this this uh, approach was quite novel back then, but today is relatively uh, today it's a relatively simple approach. And there have been many uh, many. Uh, follow-up models that kind of become more and more complex as computational power be, uh, becomes improved or it improves over time. And a lot of these studies are published in not necessarily in uh, civil engineering journals, which is what my background is is mostly in, but my literature view was mostly in the Journal of Structural Geology, Tectonophysics, and Engineering Geology. And these, this is a non-comprehensive list of some of the many, I think, fantastic studies that have uh, that have come out over the uh, over the years. Now, many of these studies have some key limitations. One is that they are overwhelmingly in two dimensions. Three-dimensional studies are fairly rare, and sand grains in nature are fundamentally three-dimensional materials. It is important to capture all six degrees of freedom of an individual particle uh, to capture the most realistic soil behavior. Many of these studies did not use advanced computing, uh, so they are limited in terms of the number of particles that they can use. This study here that shows fault rupture through, uh, through layered media, while I, I like this study, this is a relatively small number of particles. You can, you can well, if you, if you had some time to spare, you could probably go through and count the number of particles in this model. And inclusion of significantly greater quantities of particles would would lead to quite a lengthy uh, simulation time. And most studies were restricted to free field fault rupture without the presence of uh, without the presence of, for example, a building foundation.
So uh, with that being said, that leads me to my research area or my contribution to this field. So I used uh, so I used the EM to model free field fault rupture as shown here on the right and fault rupture soil foundation interaction or how this fault rupture uh, uh, this fault rupture surface interacts with this model foundation shown here. And I'll note that these are three dimensional studies. Um, another friend of mine kind of described them as ant farm models because they have a very thin width in the out of plane direction. And these are periodic boundaries at the front and back of the simulation. So it actually approximates an infinitely long distance uh, in the strike direction shown here. And these simulations are performed with high performance computing. Uh, I, I want to acknowledge the design safe cyber infrastructure for giving me access to the uh, to the UT Austin uh, supercomputers, particularly the Stampede 2 cluster. And I recognize that sand grains are not only three dimensional, but they're also non spherical. So I made sure to use non spherical particles as shown here to kind of capture that natural geometric resistance to excessive rolling and rotation. And this is a this is a multi scale method. So while we can see the macroscopic results here, we can also zoom in and observe kind of that mesoscale shear banding behavior as seen here. And the discrete element code I use is called lights developed by Kloss et al in 2012. And it's actually an open source software, which is why I'm excited to present this all to you. The code that I use here is available for free. And I won't spend too much time on this slide, but in my studies, I start off by characterizing these particle assemblages uh, using simulations of direct shear tests. And we can and with these tests, we capture uh, a wide range of behaviors based on the void ratio or relative density of the soil, where we can capture this this peak strength and strain softening in very dense materials. And you can see that that formation of, of a highly localized shear band here. And we can capture sort of that monotonic strain hardening behavior in very loose materials. And you can see in the very loose material, there's there's no shear, there's no strain localization, but it's kind of this more distributed widespread behavior. And I'll admit up front that it's still a challenge to capture the exact sizes of, of real sand grains. So it's common practice to scale the particles upwards from a real sand grain size distribution to maybe five to ten times higher in uh, in in diameter. So in case any of you want to go through and and start uh, performing some of these similar simulations, um, I'll give you a head start on how to prepare them. Basically, uh, one of the key the the key input parameters to the contact law acting between the particles is the coefficient of friction. So if I pluviate particles under a very low friction coefficient, then the particles will slide and re rearrange more easily. They'll be they will be frictionless, and that can lead to a very dense layer. If I use a higher friction coefficient, then that will restrict the ease by which the particles can rearrange and create a very loose layer with a higher void ratio. 
And by applying different friction coefficients during pluviation, I can actually create layered soils uh, with dense and loose layers kind of alternating. And prior to starting fault or prior to inducing fault rupture, I will then assign the same friction coefficient to all materials. And this method is quite effective for creating a, um, a variable void ratio distribution with depth as shown here. And you can see the distributions of void ratio in these three layered materials here compared with these homogeneous soils here. And I want to show this to my to my undergraduate geotechnical engineering students, but it does kind of it does kind of capture that realistic um, uh, stress distribution with depth in each layer. So before applying this method um, to to broader to, to broader applications, it was important to validate its uh, its capability of capturing phenomena that we observed through other well-known experiments. So starting with those experiment experiments by Cole and Lade, where Cole and Lade uh, predict the path of fault rupture propagation based on its angle of dilation, I performed a suite of different reverse and normal fault experiments with different dip angles. And I knew the angle of dilation of my of, of my discrete element particle assemblages based on my direct shear tests. And with each of these results, comparing the shear zone uh, in my simulations with that predicted by Cole and Lade in 1984, we can see that the results are quite consistent. And I'll note that I like to depict the shear zones in discrete element simulations uh, by plotting the magnitudes of particle rotations. They're kind of a proxy for uh, for for where shear deformation is occurring. I'll note, for example, here. The, the simulation captures the formation of a of a triangular shaped uh, graben at the same un under the same conditions that Cole and Lade predict the graben to develop, and they capture uh, they capture the I, I guess I could say the non formation of a graben where Cole and Lade also would say that a Grauman does not develop. And in very in uh, steeper reverse fault rupture, we see a bit more of a curved propagation path of propagation. But in shallow dipping reverse fault rupture, the prediction and the simulation both show this very linear path of fault rupture propagation. So I want to note that in this case, for 30 degree reverse fault rupture, the path is basically linear or very, very close to it. So I want so I wanted to show here how in this in these cases uh, for reverse fault rupture and loose, medium and dense soils, how it captures uh, that that density dependent um, that that density dependent inclination of the shear surface, where under as you increase your density higher and higher, the path of fault rupture propagation uh, becomes becomes shallower, kind of uh, it, like it's kind of being pulled in this direction towards the footwall. And in layered soils, we also capture that dependence of the path of fault rupture propagation on the relative density, which is also related to the angle of dilation of these materials. So we can see how 
the path of fault rupture propagation changes very distinctly at the interface of two different layers, where this is a loose layer and this is a dense layer, where the where the uh, inclination angle of this rupture path is much steeper in this loose layer than it is in this dense layer. And we see sort of this, we see the same behavior in these three layered soils as shown here. And the case also holds true for reverse or for normal fault rupture, still consistent with what Colin Laude uh, uh, theorized back in 1984. And as a sidebar, um, if we're going to be calculating the behavior of particles based on their interactions and contact forces, I think it's interesting to look at these distributions of contact forces. Specifically, I want to look at this trapdoor type distribution, this, this arch distribution of contact forces when you have, uh, when you have a trapdoor developing here. That arch distribution develops in shallow normal fault rupture. So this is a 30 degree dip normal fault rupture simulation. And you, can, you can't really see much happening when you just kind of look at sort of the, the unprocessed uh, particles, just, uh, just raw simulation results. Eventually, at larger displacements of, uh, of the bedrock, we see this arch structure starting to collapse. Kind of, it kind of disappears. And at that point, we start seeing this grobin start to develop as the soil here is is losing its support from the surrounding from the surrounding arch of strong contact forces. And as this soil in the middle is losing its lateral support through friction, this grobin is starting to develop. So that's just a just what I thought was an interesting mechanism of grobin formation that's that was elucidated through this discrete element approach to surface fault rupture. Now, I mentioned the simulation, or sorry, the experimental results of Bransby et al. in 2008, where they performed their suite of centrifuge experiments, as shown here. And here is my analogous discrete element simulation based on this centrifuge result. And I'll also compare it to the finite difference or continuum-based a simulation performed by my colleagues here. Comparing all three methods where this is a profile of the ground surface deformation, so just just kind of the profile of the fault scarp shown here, we can see that the discrete element method act, uh, results actually capture those of the experiment in black quite nicely. So comparing the, the red dots and the black lines here, there's actually quite a nice close comparison. And I would argue that the discrete element results actually capture the experimental results slightly better than the, than the finite difference results. And I'll note, as an aside, that the discrete element simulations required much fewer, uh, uh, way fewer input parameters than the, than the continuum model. So at this point, I've shown that discrete element, the discrete element method can capture results that we've seen through sandbox style experiments. But now there's the question of can it cap, does it still capture what we observe in, in the real world? 
in field, field case hitter, histories and reconnaissance studies. And just showing examples of reverse and normal fault rupture for loose, medium and dense soils. We can see that for, oops, this is this is backwards. This should be ductile and this should be brittle. We can see that for dense dense soils here, we see that that distinct strain localization in the fault rupture path, which is what we also observe here. And for ductile soil, let me fix this. There, I'll say. This is how I fix stuff in my classes. <laughs> All right, so. Um, so in so in these very loose soils where you see we see more widespread shear deformation. OK, not really a distinct shear localization as we see in the dense soils. Um, and this has been described as local absorption of the displacement at the bedrock within the overlying granular medium. And that's exactly what we observe in the field, except these these uh, discrete element simulations provide uh, some supplementary or complementary insight where we can see how the sh we can see the mechanism of how the shear is distributed over this much broader area. And we it's kind of difficult to see that through field case histories because we uh, here because we don't exactly have the benefit of post processing uh, in many cases. So uh, so in this case, uh, the discrete element simulations are very much kind of supplementing what we observe in reality. And we can see that the shape of the fault scarp uh, is very much dependent on the relative density of the material, where we can see how very dense soils have a much sharper um, uh, uh, fault scarp that occurs over a much thinner area, where very loose soils and red here are kind of distributed over a much broader area. Same thing in the normal fault case on the right. And that's consistent with observations made in the field. Now, uh, in my most recent paper uh, in soil dynamics and earthquake engineering, I talk about how homogeneous simulations are uh, simulations of homogeneous soils are great. They tell us a lot of information, but they don't always perfectly match what we what we see in the field. Nature is complex. So I am of the philosophy that to capture the complexities observed in nature, we need to include complexities in our models. So in nature, what's been observed is this kind of reversal of the path of fault rupture propagation in normal fault rupture and the development of this of this mole track here. That doesn't quite appear as obviously in the homogeneous case. And just throwing in uh, a simple a simple layer in the middle of some model, for example, a loose layer within an overlying dense soil of and we and I mess with the thickness of this loose layer, I can kind of eventually develop more of that mole track shape as shown here. So inclusion of that heterogeneity, that natural complexity 
is actually required to uh, more accurately capture phenomena that we observe in the real world. So here is just some examples of homogeneous soils for uh, loose and dense homogeneous discrete element soils under normal and reverse fault rupture conditions. Kishore, do you have a question? Oh, sorry, that sorry, wasn't. That wasn't. OK. <laughs> um, but yeah, feel free to ask any questions. In the meantime, I will. There we go. I'll show a little video. Here we have a loose, a loose soil overlying a dense soil. Notice how the shear rupture splits off into two different into these two different shear uh shear rupture paths here and here i'll play that video again so it kind of splits off into two different to into two different shear zones In the case of reverse fault rupture, whether loose or dense, there was only one general shear zone. But by just including a very simple case of heterogeneity of a loose layer over a dense layer, we develop those two different shear zones. And we know that it is directly a result of this heterogeneity because the homogeneous cases that had these same densities did not develop this type of complex behavior. And again, here with the dense soil overlying a loose soil, we see sort of that mole track thrust feature with the fault rupture path kind of reversing direction towards the hanging wall here. Oh, I looks like I skipped ahead of myself, but yeah, we can see that that mole track thrust observed in nature kind of shown here as well because of the presence of heterogeneities, in this case, layered soils. Um, and another another thing I thought was very interesting was uh, the effect of thin layers where if you recall previously uh, for very shallow dipping, 30 degree dip reverse fault rupture or just thrust faulting, uh, only one, only a single shear, uh, shear path developed. But I include one loose layer here and it, ca it causes a little bit of chaos where it's where the shear zone or the, the, the shear deformation spreads widely within this loose layer and it actually sort of splits off into these two different shear paths here and then reconnect re reconnect uh through the loose layer to continue up to the ground surface and if the when the loose layer was much thicker we can see how the distinct the the single distinct shear zone here spreads very widely within that loose layer and then splits off 
into two different shear paths up continuing to the ground surface. So this type of complex behavior is simply not captured if we continue to assume that soil is homogeneous in our models. Now, that was, so all of that previously was, I, I thought was interesting results, but how are we gonna use it in engineering design? And when I started plotting the ground surface deformations for homogeneous and layered soils, I noticed that the homogeneous soils acted as bounding cases. So I'll re-explain that. Each of the each of the colored lines here and here represent heterogeneous cases. Um, I, I I decided it wouldn't be it would not be too helpful to include uh, uh, a legend here. I'll just kind of explain simply that the 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 colored lines are heterogeneous soils. They include different numbers of layers, uh, with each layer having different thicknesses. And the black lines are completely homogeneous. So each of the layers in the heterogeneous cases is either dense or loose. And in this case, either dense or loose. So the black lines are the results of are the results of of uh, homogeneous simulations that have uh, that, that have uh, the properties of those dense or those loose layers. And I'll note that for all of these cases, they of heterogeneous soils, they fall within the bounds of those homogeneous soils. Furthermore, I'll note that as you include more and more layers, for example, these two cases here where, where I have 10 different layers of alternating loose and dense soil, you start to get sort of an averaging behavior where you start to get sort of a, 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 a linear path to fault rupture propagation uh, from bedrock to ground surface as it goes through these layers. But the bigger thing I want to point out is that is that I've consistently found that homogeneous soils act as bounds in terms of the ground surface deformations uh, to those that develop in heterogeneous soils. So obviously this is sort of a so, sort of a, a preliminary a preliminary a preliminary result based on my based on my most recent paper. But I do think it's worth looking into sort of uh, with the idea of or with under, with the hypothesis that there's potentially a th that this could potentially be a deterministic approach to fault rupture mitigation, where if we have complex soils with different layers, each layer having different properties, what if we can actually uh, simplify our models based on the extremes? of the properties and instead use models that are completely homogeneous that have those extremes. So that way, if we have all these different variations, for example, here of layered heterogeneous soils that have all types of shapes of the fault scarp, whether uh, whether a localized fault scarp or a 
or a broader, more widespread ground surface deformation? What if instead we say that that fault scarp will either be this case here, very localized and very sharp, or this case here that is not as sharp and spread over a wider area? So my, my hypothesis that I plan to continue exploring is, can we use these homogeneous cases as bounds to our potential ground surface deformations? And to explore that hypothesis, I'm going to need to continue relying on high performance computing. So in my in my most recent paper, um, and and I'm going to just shamelessly plug my my own papers. Um, I was able to perform over 100 simulations to evaluate the influence of soil inhomogeneity, with each simulation containing over 1 million particles, which is a lot more than what than what we than what uh, studies used to do in the past without the help of high-performance computing. And when you consider that I am using non-spherical particles, that includes, that means that each of my simulations included about two and a half million constituent spheres. And each simulation took a total of two to four days using 384 cores on the Stampy 2 cluster at UT Austin. So thank you to DesignSafe for giving me access to, uh, to these tools. Um, and although two to four days, it's longer than a single sandbox experiment, although I'll argue it's shorter than a centrifuge experiment, with high-performance computing, we can run multiple simulations simultaneously. Uh, take, for example, on the cluster I used for this research, I was allowed to run 25 simulations at a time. So hypothetically speaking, so let's say by the end of one week, I can have I can have maybe 50 simulations done, and that's a large amount of data uh, with which to perform uh, more in-depth analyses. So that being said, uh, I believe there is time to move on to some other developments. So I won't spend too much time on this because I know we are, I'm getting to 45 minutes now, um, but I focused a lot on free field fault rupture but a lot of this was also geared towards fault foundation interaction. And this is just kind of a broad overview of how I validated the capability of discrete element modeling to capture uh, what we observe in terms of fault foundation interaction from those brands be at all centrifuge experiments. The one, the main thing I wanna focus on is the fact that these cases of reverse fault rupture captured how heavier and heavier foundations actually altered and deflected the path of fault rupture. The mechanism being that the heavier foundation uh, increases the contact forces between the particles beneath it, and that increases their resistance to sliding past each other, which increases the resistance to shear propagation beneath the foundation, which forces the foundation to, instead of emerging here, will instead be forced to emerge here on the hanging wall side. And in nature, we have observed how heavy structures can deflect the path of fault rupture propagation. During the 99 Kochali Turkey earthquake, these heavy concrete bunkers at a naval shipyard actually deflected the path of strike slip fault rupture. 
where it the the uh, the the fault intersected the bunker and and changed its path. And similar observations have been made during the 1972 uh, Managua Nicaragua earthquake, where where fault rupture intersected uh, a thick walled underground concrete bank vault and actually was deflected around the vault. So I, this is definitely a phenomenon worth exploring in more detail. And I recognize that I am showing this for reverse fault rupture, but not strikes of fault rupture yet. Now there is precedent for moving on to strikes of fault rupture, and that's what my current research is, is, is looking into. We have field case histories of strikes of fault rupture of just general phenomena that we would expect to see in a numerical model. We have sandbox models, uh, and I, I think it's clear that I'm quite a fan of these sandbox models because of the mechanisms that they elucidate. And there are some continuum-based numerical models, uh, as shown here on the right. There is precedent for performing strike-slip-fault rupture simulations with DEM. Uh, this study in particular shows that uh, showed that high-performance computing is definitely going to be a benefit. Um, but I'll acknowledge that there have been some in interesting findings uh, without high-performance computing, um, such as here. Uh, I think, and uh, uh, thank you, Josie, for introducing me to this study here. Um, and I like I like this study in particular because it kind of shows how DEM can capture that uh, that soil structure interaction uh, with surface fault rupture. Now I think I like these studies. They show that a broader a broader study of strikes of fault rupture and its effects on the built environment is certainly possible. But I have yet to see a study go into into go in depth into the effect of soil heterogeneity. Uh, and look at the influence of soil depth uh, and different boundary conditions. So that is sort of where I am going. That's sort of where I'm moving. Uh, uh, that, that's where I'm moving forward following my previous work presented. So uh, I have a lot of hope from these from uh, from these previous studies because um, they show that complex virtual experiments of strikes to fault rupture are certainly possible. And I believe, I fully believe, we can develop we we can develop these virtual experiments to look at a uh, to look at uh, a broad suite of different soil conditions and how they affect uh, and how they affect uh, the manifestation of fault rupture at the ground surface. So, uh, just in conclusion, um, as I mentioned, I think DEM is a viable tool for virtual experimentation of surface fault rupture. And it's and uh, I validated it for reverse and normal fault rupture, and I showed that it can capture uh, behaviors in complex soil strata uh, with complex boundary conditions, all without any prior knowledge of material constitutive behavior, allowing it to truly be a virtual experiment beyond just a simulation. Now these uh, this type these types of studies do require high performance computing to be more practical. But with the benefit of high-performance computing, uh, I think there is certainly potential for broader applications in soil structure and interaction, and also larger or regional-scale tectonic deformations. Um, so here's just some acknowledgments. Uh, I obviously got to credit my employer, University of Michigan, but I also uh, give a lot of credit to uh, 
to uh, UC Berkeley where I began doing this research. Um, so thank you to my dissertation committee, Professor John Bray, Professor Nick Sitar, and Professor Doug Drager. Um, thank you to uh, DesignSafe uh, and uh, Professor Ella Rathke and Dr. Tim Cockerell for providing access to uh, to the Texas Advanced Computing Center and and their and their supercomputers. And also thank you to the National Science Foundation uh, for paying my bills when I was a graduate student. So uh, that is it. Uh, thank you for your time and attention. Hey, thank you. That was great. Everyone give her a round of applause for that. I can open up questions now. You can write them in the chat or you can raise your hand. Ben, you have a question? Yep. Um, waiting to come here. Uh, thanks a lot, Estefan. That was really enjoyable. That was a great talk. Yeah. Thank um, you. A couple, a couple of questions for you. One super pressing is: so, did they actually paint the herd onto the stampede cluster? <laughs> showed. Um, uh, I. So I don't have Tim Cockerell's phone number, or else I would call him right now. <laughs> I will have. <laughs> is that i will yeah i will have to ask him that i mean that's i'm my my family's from texas so you know we get to, we get to <laughs> okay moving along moving along the um uh just one one clarification and then and then a broader question um sorry if i missed this it, the boundary conditions on the simulations were the uh boundary conditions which were represented by the arrows so moving up the block it you didn't actually have elements defining the fault right Yes. Right. So, so, yeah. So these these oh, well, that's a that's a pen, not a laser pointer. Um, uh, the arrows represent the the direction of hanging wall movement. The right. hanging wall, actually, okay, I always use the pen. Um, well, I'll turn it into classroom mode. So the hanging wall represents this lower boundary and this right vertical boundary, and so it moves up. Displacement a displacement boundary condition at the at the at the borders. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then so um. I imagine you've you've started to experiment with or, uh, w with you know frictional frictional variations along a fault plane to to simulate a pre-existing fault plane that might have different fault friction compared to wall rock friction. Have you have you explored that? I I did actually. So I'm glad you asked that because I you know this, sorry if this turns into a more of a a, a bit of a lengthy a lengthy answer, but. <laughs> Um, Nick Odell and John Bray in their 2013 paper in Journal of Journal of Geotechnical and Geoenvironmental Engineering, I believe, they they it was on uh, the effects of pre-rupture. So they they did look at the kind of the existence of a, of a previously weakened shear zone, and I did uh, earlier in my PhD I did attempt to replicate that with DEM. Um, the challenge was. The particles I was using were were uh, were too coarse, uh, so it was it was hard to capture that behavior. Um, I do want to go back to that idea uh, and basically use finer particles and get those simulations done by using by simply using more computers. Um, and I I mean I don't mean to make the answer that or the the approach that simple, um, but yeah, generally generally you know more computers with the code I use makes them faster. Um, if I use more particles, it's it, okay. Maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that. But the answer to your question, that is something that is on my mind that I made an attempt to look at. Um, 
and then I put it aside because I wasn't happy with the results, but I believe it is possible. Up to this point, everything has been uh, undisturbed prior to fault rupture. Cool. Oh, yeah, cool. Thanks. And then just real quick, you, you talked about the bounding case for the homogeneous de uh, uh, density effect effectively. Um, yes. um, and can you comment, you said that you want to use that as bounding cases. Do you mean more sort of in the general scientific exploration or actually in terms of sort of probabilistic hazard displacement analysis or, or you know, like sort of going to a zone and saying, hey, we can bound this zone based on our, our field estimates of density. <laughs> you are you you are forcing me to give away my ideas, but yes, um, I. So <laughs> That's what we do here at the USGS. Yeah, yeah. it's the government. Um, yeah. So yes, I I describe this as a, I describe these as the deterministic approach, where I yeah. say hey, it's going to be this, or it's going to be between this or this. Right. But yes, everything in between here represents a probabilistic possibility so absolutely and in fact when i start working on that you know i put my email at the end because i'm ha i i would love to talk more great thanks <laughs> um great so sean had to jump off but he said um my other question is actually a comment for the future hope we can continue to promote these and other interactions and collaborations among the ge engineering and geologic seismologic communities thanks for the great overview Oh, thank um, you. And then uh, looks like Austin was next up. Uh, sure. Thanks, um, Esteban. That was a great. That was a really interesting talk about um, important work. I think uh, my question. I, I I think you basically started touching on it at the end with uh, Ben's question just now. But um, it's essentially yeah. With these deterministic end members, you have actually a. It makes the potential width of the fault zone have a pretty huge uncertainty, right? It goes from mm -hmm. a range of a handful of meters to like 30 meters of potential yeah. <laughs> um, fault zone width. So I wonder within those intermediate cases, you know, you showed that if you have these uh, stacked uniform layers alternating, it sort of converges on an average. But what do you think is the potential for identifying with individually well-known site characteristics, if you can dig down and get some estimate of layer densities or, or the number of different layers, um, can you start to constrain and define the width of a fault zone a little bit better site by site? Yeah, so so if I can if I can rephrase your question is, if we through through site investigation know what is beneath the ground surface with high accuracy, can we reproduce that stratigraphy? Yeah, maybe I, I might. I mean, I, yeah, I might frame it a little more um, generically, given that we probably won't know, you know, precisely exactly yeah. <laughs> what the depth structure is like. But maybe something like to what depth or what what number of what degree of variability in the subsurface layers leads to different fault zone widths. You know, can you sort of estimate with rougher data, um, maybe? Yeah, and it it would be a it would be a challenge. So, um, I'll say that one thing about DEM that I've noticed is that it actually can very accurately replicate materials that are very well known. But that is that was shown for steel ball bearings, where we know we know their friction, we know their Young's modulus, and all that good stuff. Um, 
a little bit harder for sands and clays. <laughs> um, but I think it's, I think we can get a reasonable accuracy. I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitant to, I'm hesitant to say that we're going to apply this in engineering design right away. Um, I think this is in its early stages, like finite element. I, I do think it's in its early stages, like the finite element method once was uh, years ago. Um, but if we could design our model to capture known stress strain behavior, for example, if we, you know, we, if we replicated, if we, if, if we produce materials that had this uh, stress strain, strain softening and dilancy behavior um, and produced you know this material within a within layers of a of a fault rupture model um i i i still don't think it would be a hundred it, it definitely wouldn't be a hundred percent accurate to uh what would be produced in nature but my idea is basically that kind of probabilistic approach and with a factor of safety approach where we recognize that Obviously, the discrete element method is not perfect, but uh, can it be used to elucidate more mechanisms of of how the ground surface will deform? Will that fault scar be very localized, or will it be very widespread? For example, um, and it can I think it could give us a reasonable idea of a range with which to with which to uh, maybe perform greater mitigation uh, for for a site, but I think that is a long term. I think that's a longer term development that requires much more validation, because um, there's, you know, it's it's only as it's only as accurate as its assumptions and simplifications. So I don't I I, I don't think we're there yet, um, and also I would I would say that it kind of depends. I get to the idea of I get to the question of of why would we why would we do that? There's there's certain applications where I do think the finite element method would be better. If we if we know material behavior and we want to work with known material behavior, then we might as well just do that. I see the discrete element method more as informing us where we don't know material behavior, kind of treating it as that experiment, that virtual experiment, rather rather than that simulation approach. Thanks. I apologize if that was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> um, I so, feel like it was a very philosophical answer as well. <laughs> that's great. Um, so Belle has a question. She says, it's a fascinating idea that end-member soil properties could be used to bracket the potential surface rupture distributions for more complex layered models. Uh, do you have a sense of how deep you have to go before the layers stopped affecting surface rupture distribution? Uh, that's a great question. Um, how deep will you? I actually don't know. The, I don't know the answer to to that one. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely worth looking into. I uh, I did I, I did put in a proposal to look into the effect to kind of include the influence of soil depth. But yeah, if we if uh, say for for example. Say, for example, I had one thin one layer down here, and everything above was homogeneous. Then, uh, I, yeah, I don't know how it how that would affect things. Um, however, what I have looked into is 
these types of cases here where um yeah i think it's definitely possible to take say a very thin layer such as this one and just vary the depth at which that layer occurs and see what its ultimate effect is on the ground surface deformations. So I don't know how to, I don't know what the answer is, but I think I know how we could find the answer. Um, cool. So, so I think we have a few more questions. We're running a little bit over, but um, Josie, you want to ask? Uh, Sure. Uh, thanks for a great talk. Um, I really like how you think about these like virtual experiments as sort of determining the constitutive behavior and parameters. Um, so I'm curious though about what other like sources of heterogeneity you can introduce. So you mainly focused on density variations, but I imagine you could also change the grain size or grain shape that might reflect, you know, realistic variations from clay to sands, et cetera. Um, so is that something you've looked into at all? Uh, not yet. So my my philosophy going into this was that if DEM captures the particles directly, that means it captures the pore space directly. So I spent a lot of time trying to focus on that aspect in particular, um, porosity and void ratio. In the previous work, if I could go back more, one of the reasons I did that is because uh, previous studies such as this did look into varying uh, cohesive bond strengths and things of that nature. So um, it is possible to have maybe a cohesive layer and a and a cohesionless layer, um, and or to have different combinations of that with different relative density and different different cohesive strengths. Mm -hmm. And on top of that uh oh and it's and it's um i did do a, a small a small study kind of for fun um that looked into particle shape of having spherical particles in one layer and non-spherical particles in another layer all yeah. these things uh all, all these things do you, you can see the effect at the layer at the layer interfaces um and also i've only been doing horizontal layers i do want to look into having you know non-horizontal very complex layering Mm -hmm. or not layering, but just stratigraphy. Um, uh, so yeah, to answer your question, yes, there, there, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of other types of heterogeneities that we can look at. Yeah. Is your sense that density is sort of the uh, kind of first order uh, kind of impact? I don't know if it's first order. I would definitely put density at least, I, I would, I, I'm I'm biased. I want to put density as a first order thing. It, uh, obviously, stress also has an impact, but I think it would depend on how strong your bond strength is. So I I think that's that. I think that'd be an interesting thing to to look at. Is the effect of cohesion or tensile bonding in the model stronger than the than the influence of pore space? Right. Cool. A lot to look at. Yeah, I think it's a very. I think if if it's a very weak cohesion, then I think the effect of density will be stronger. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. All right, thank you. Okay, we had um, a Tom, and then we'll get to Curtis last, and maybe we can have a more informal discussion. So, Tom, go ahead. Hope you're on mute. Yeah, thanks for a very interesting talk. I I was uh, kind of wondering. 
what happens if your fault doesn't quite make it to the surface? In all your cases, you have driven the fault uh, completely through the section. But if it stops below the surface, you'll still form a scarp. Mm-hmm. Um, and the breadth of the scarp will depend on how deep it is, how the depth of, of the stoppage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I mentioned that was the uh, recent earthquake in the eastern United States has the this fault scarp the 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 fault the the faulting itself did not quite make it to the surface mm-hmm. or that's what I read in right. in ESA today but um, is kind of an example of a fault through soils that didn't quite make it to the surface and I'm pretty sure and so what would that look like in your models so this, I, I think this is another question that's kind of forcing me to to give away my my favorite ideas. Um, so I love this question, and in my in my simulations so far, I've modeled them based on these types of sandbox experiments, where you have this entire hanging wall moving as a single unit, and that means for very small deformations. Every um, and these are quasi. I should also mention that I didn't say before. These are these are uh, quasi or pseudo static simulations. They are very slow. So every displacement here is going to result in a displacement here. So that's why everything here is basically how much the bedrock has displaced out at this extreme boundary, and that is the case no matter how small the bedrock displacement is under these boundary conditions. So my approach to answering your question is to instead perform uh, shortening or contraction experiments. So let me go back to another. I believe I have a I showed a picture of it. Of these types. Uh, so. Here, for example, we have this. We don't have the lower wall moving upward. We have this lateral wall moving inward. I think those are the boundary conditions to see if fault rupture makes it all the way from bedrock to ground surface. Um, I have a, a student who is I've tasked her with looking into this based on some of these experiments. So I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for you at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll give the last question to Curtis. Hey, Stefan, great talk. Um, always give me lots to think about, as always. Um, so my question was with regard to the deflection of the fault surface rupture when you have a structure or a foundation atop the what might otherwise be the fault surface rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, so your models show the deflection of that rupture, and you showed an example in Turkey where that strike slip rupture ruptures around these bunkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other examples, like in your first few sets of photos is for your motivation, like in New Zealand, where the fault actually ruptured right through the, the house, for example. Mm-hmm. And then there are structures in Hayward, along the Hayward Fault, that are being torn apart as that strike slip fault kind of passes right beneath them, um, is the difference in like is the deflection 
and or repositioning of that fault structure dependent on weight, or might that be an expression of predetermined fault frictional property, like a, a predetermined fault surface that was then built on top? Like, does the pre-existing fault frictional coefficient perhaps influence whether or not that rupture um, migrates or not? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, um, or I should say, I know I know a lot of people who do have a lot more thoughts on that. <laughs> um, I'll say Otol and Bray 2013, Journal of Geotechnical and Geoenvironmental Engineering. Uh, they, they did look at pre-rupturing with and without the presence of a structure nearby. Um, and there is, uh, John Bray has a 2009 paper, um, and, and Curtis, I can email these to you, of course, but, um, he does have a uh, he does have a 2009 paper that has different mitigation strategies. One having to do with the use of a decoupling layer, like a, a low friction uh, polyethylene layer beneath the beneath the foundation, so that the strains at the ground surface do not transfer to the structure to kind of decouple the foundation from the from the ground surface. Like the Berkeley uh, Stadium. I don't. I'm not an expert on the Berkeley Stadium, but I think, yes, it's kind of similar to that. Um, in fact, John was uh, part of that project. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, the, the weight of the foundation does have a significant influence as these results show. Um, I want to be careful. I didn't, there's some slides I did not include in, in this presentation, but I have, uh, um, I have a, a, a 2019, paper in, in geotechnical and, geo and geoenvironmental engineering where I show that this these heavy foundations are beneficial in all in generally all generally all cases of reverse fault rupture and most cases of normal fault rupture but you could have cases of normal fault rupture where the foundation is low is kind of positioned on top of the fault scarp on top of the fault scarp and then it being heavier will actually cause it to will will cause it to induce failure in the soil which could potentially cause more damage. So I don't want to universally say the heavier foundations are better. Um, but what we've seen in nature is that generally uh, we very often see that the that the rigidity of the foundation and and the weight of the structure does influence um, does have a significant impact on the path of fault rupture propagation. Awesome. Thanks. So then just for the record, Estefan, here at the USGS, you're saying build on active fault traces. <laughs> um, I am, you know, I am if we're recording. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am saying maybe don't do that. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get sued and, you know, I don't want anyone to get hurt. So, you know, don't build on act. Depends on how active, but generally don't do that if you, if you can avoid it. I'd say the the spirit of this research is when avoidance is not possible or extremely difficult or in the case where hey that structure is already there we discovered the fault after the fact what do we do and that's where this line of research here the probabilistic or the deterministic approach that's where this line of research is meant to provide more guidance but this research also doesn't quite tell you it doesn't quite tell you how active or what the or what the recurrence interval is, um, so uh, that is that that's sort of a this is all kind of based on the assumption that we figured that out prior to doing these analyses.
Um, well, thank you so much, Esteban. Let's give everyone a, give a round of applause again, and uh, so we can stop recording if anyone has more uh, crazy questions. We can do that off <laughs> <laughs> recording. So thanks again. Oh, thank you. Uh,